Hello and welcome back to Lutheran Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. A quick shout out to our podcast partners, KFUO.org. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Check them out at KFUO.org. It's a great pleasure to be partnered with them and their work in proclaiming the gospel around the world. Last, uh, our last podcast was actually a presentation I offered to the Kansas District. This is part two of that. So if you're getting started here with Lutheran Witness here on this podcast, you should back up one episode, listen to the first one. Or don't. I had a number of people say they like this one better anyway, so uh, maybe you, you're interested in the background, maybe you're not. There's going to be some things that you miss in this presentation uh, if you didn't hear the first one, but regardless, I think this is actually the better half. Uh, it's focused on uh, discussing the religious nuns, those who identify as not in UN, but in ONE. They don't belong to any affiliation. And then how we as the church approach this uh, and care for uh, our witness in this context to these people, particularly in our homes. What does it look like uh, as we raise our children in the faith uh, so that they don't end up as those who mark religiously none uh, and why this is important? So uh, enjoy this podcast. Once again, this was for the LCMS Kansas District at their convention. They asked me to present uh, on this topic. And I want to give a huge thank you to the Kansas District for asking me to do this. It was a great pleasure and delight to do this. And I hope you find it as as helpful as I did and as also the Kansas District did. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me, Roy Askins, roy.askins at lcms.org. It's good to be back here with you again. Uh, I want to say my exposure to Synod in Convention has been only one other district, and then synod in convention as a whole. And I want to say, I think the Kansas district is to be commended for your collegial and brotherly attitude and how well this has been done. Uh, praise the Lord, you are, I think, a witness to many other districts on how to do the work of the church together. So uh, give yourselves a hand. Well done. Um, it's a delight to see all right, so uh, yesterday I gave you, uh, Pastor uh, Himmer reminded me I didn't uh, follow through with my chunk analogy. I told you you were going to get four chunks. You got the first two chunks yesterday where we talked about uh, your theme verse and then the history of the Lutheran Witness. Today we're going to finish up with the last two chunks uh, of material that I have prepared for you. And this is <clears throat> going to be looking forward to... Um, oh, shoot, I opened the wrong text. Hold on a second. I got my wrong notes up here. Uh, uh, today we're going to be doing uh, one of the things we struggle with, uh, we are struggling with culturally as uh, in, in the United States, but then also um, some suggestions that I have, some thoughts that I have, some uh, practical suggestions uh, for what we can do to address some of these things uh, in the future. Um, so let's start with talking about one of the, the major challenges we have. And as I previewed yesterday, we're going to talk about the nuns, that is, those who identify as none on religious uh, surveys. They mark their religion as nothing in particular or none. Now, our automatic instinct are to with this group of people is to say, well, if they mark none, then they must be some sort of atheist or agnostic, right? If you're a Christian, you mark Christian on the survey, Buddhist, you mark Buddhist. If you mark none, you must not believe in God, ergo, uh, you're an atheist. But this is actually not the case. If we look at some statistics, it'll reveal that this group of people that mark none on the religious survey actually have uh, 
profoundly spiritual beliefs. So let's work through some of these, these statistics. A 2019 Pew study indicates that around 65% of Americans claim to be Christian, to belong to some sort of Christianity. Once you factor in non-Christian religions, atheism, agnosticism, and so forth, you're left with about 25% of the American population that marks none on their religious survey. Now, in terms of individual religious groups, this actually makes the nuns the fastest-growing religious group in America today. So it's something we need to take note of. Now let's break down some of the beliefs in this group. And for this, and for kind of a large section of this, uh, this kind of first section, I'm going to use an analysis done by Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, she wrote a fantastic book called, actually it's a really horrible book, but it's very helpful for understanding the situation we're in, called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Uh, pastors, I encourage you to read it. Um, laity, if you have a strong stomach, uh, go for it as well. It, she, she's actually very sympathetic to this movement, but she describes some really kind of terrifying, deviant behaviors that are in part of this community. Uh, but it's helpful for us to kind of understand where these people are coming from more broadly. So here's what she writes. A full 72% of the nuns, that's nearly three quarters, a full 72% of the nuns say they believe in, if not the God of the Bible, at least something. Right? So they've marked none on their religious survey, and yet 75% of them believe that there's some sort of spiritual existence or reality out there somewhere that needs to be investigated. Right? According to a 2018 Pew Research Center, 55, uh, Research Center study, 55% of the religiously unaffiliated believe in a higher power, or some spiritual force distinct from that described in the Judeo-Christian Bible. Furthermore, an additional 17% of the unaffiliated say that they believed precisely in the God of the Abrahamic Bible. Okay, So they, are, they say they believe in what the Bible says, yet they have decided uh, we are not going to affiliate with a particular religious denomination. 46% of these nuns talk to God or this higher power regularly. 13% say that God talks back. 48% of them think that that higher power has protected them throughout life. 41% say that it has rewarded them. 28% say that it has punished them. 40% experience a sense of spiritual peace and well-being at least once a week, a percentage that actually increased by five points between 2007 and 2014. 47% believe in the presence of spiritual energy and physical objects. You'll actually be astounded to know, I think it's something like a third of Christians actually also believe the same thing, that there is spiritual energy in physical objects, like those who identify with a Christian denomination, right? Um, continue on, 38% believe in reincarnation, 32% believe in astrology, and 62%, it turns out, in at least one of those four. So in other words, those who mark none on the spiritual religious survey are not doing so because they reject belief in some sort of spiritual reality. They're neither atheists nor agnostics. Rather, they mark none out of, re of, out of a rejection of the structures of Protestant creedal faith in particular. Uh, they mark none out of a desire to fashion their own religion in their own image and their own form. You've probably heard them described themselves often as spiritual but not religious. 
This means, this is their way of indicating, I believe in the existence of some sort of spiritual reality out there, but I don't want anyone else telling me uh, what to believe about that spiritual reality. Okay. Burton says that uh, the nuns also belong to a larger group that is more difficult to evaluate statistically, statistically, and she calls this group the remix. So you have the nuns in this category, but you have this larger group she's calling the remixed. And they're called remixed because they might actually identify with a particular religion, but they their way of looking at religious uh, belief and their own religious belief is they can pick and uh, pick what they want to believe. They can mix and match their religious beliefs. In other words, she calls this an unbundling of religious belief, right? If you're a Lutheran, it comes with a bundle of beliefs, right? We have the Word of God. We hold to what the Word of God says. We have teaching uh, from the, the Catechism and Lutheran Confessions. What somebody in this remixed category might say is, the God of the Bible sounds great in categories A and B, but I don't really like what they say about closed communion or whatever it might be. So I'm going to reject that uh, teaching, and I'm okay with that, right? Uh, because I'm picking uh, and choosing what I want to believe. They are governed by an intuitional approach to religion, uh, what she, what Burden ends up calling a uh, personal bespoke religion, and we'll talk, we'll break that down a little bit more. But I think really what helps us, will help us get to this group and their beliefs is this one definition. She's got a couple of them in the book, but this one definition is really helpful. She defines this remixed category, so including the nuns and those who have this, this view we're about to talk about, a religion of emotive intuition, of aestheticized and commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies. <laughs> she, she actually... the. the for all the really kind of horrifying things, there's a section in there where she deals with the sexual deviancy in this group of, of remixed religious people. And it's really just kind of disturbing to read. But she's an amazing author. She's got, as terms of a writer, looking at her as an editor, it was just fantastic to follow her sentence structures and her writing. She actually does a really good job of working through these statistics and making it enjoyable, you know, something you wanted to read. So if you're into it, uh, into Digging into this, it was well worth it. But let's break down that de definition a bit. Emotive intuition. What is this? Well, this is the primary lens through which the nuns and the remixed identify what is true and what is not. It is emotive. It is based on feelings and emotional responses. It is intuitional. That is based on unexpressed, subconscious, uh, unconscious desires. They would say, once again, it feels right, right? This becomes the, the way of determining what's true and not. Not what God has spoken, not an external uh, limiting reality on me, but what feels right. Uh, you and I look, once again, to a creedal express, expression of faith, to the scriptures and the confessions. Um, it's something that says, I believe in God, right? And here is what I believe about him. Emotive intuitionalism views such belief, such expressions of faith as cold and callous, and lacking in feeling. You're not really feeling it, right? Because you're just uh, saying what people before you said. Okay, so that's emotive intuition. Commodified experience. This is a fascinating term uh, because what she's in indicating by this is that this religious experience, this spirituality, is something that actually can be purchased. 
Uh, one of the things that's actually taking the world by storm in the marketing realm is what they're calling uh, tribal marketing, right? Where when you buy something, you're not just buying a pair of shoes or I'm not just buying a phone. I'm buying into the identity of what it means to be an Apple owner, right? I own Apple computers. I own Apple phones. And with that comes all the attendant things that Apple people do, right? We're a little bit snooty. We got fancy shoes, yada, 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 whatever it is, okay? The idea being that this is actually an experience, a religious reality, a spiritual reality that you can purchase. And one of the examples she, she discusses is really kind of this pervasive wellness culture. And she discusses one example being soul cycle. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who does soul cycle is, you know, believing in the secular religion, but she herself calls it a secular religion. And she says, listen to the motivational mantras their trainers use, right? They make religious claims. Today is all about you. You were created by a purpose for a purpose. These are spiritual mantras, right? I mean, just consider the title of the company, Soul Cycle, right? They are exercising for the improvement not simply of their bodies, but also their souls, right? It is an experience that you can buy, you purchase, right? So it's this commodified experience, this identity that you're buying into. And then finally she says it is a religion of self-creation and self-improvement. If there's anything that really marks the remixed category, it is this idea of self, this incessant focus uh, on revolving around the self and, and the, 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 my own identity and desires. Self-creation, right? Once again, we return here to the idea of bespoke religion. Uh, I love this term, bespoke. It's been misused uh, here recently. Now you can get bespoke anything you want. Originally, it referred to a particular type of suit that was only available in Savile Row in England, right? So my uh, inclinations towards, um, you know, uh, oh, what's the, the term? Oh, I knew I was going to lose it right when I thought of it. Shoot. Uh, anyways, uh, a, a bespoke suit is one you get on Savile Row, and it's not simply made to measure. It's made for you. It has a unique pattern, a unique identity. It, of course, it, they, they take the measures to fit you, but it is made only for you. You will not find another suit like this one because it fits you perfectly. It encapsulates your identity, right? That is what these religions are. Each person is himself his own religion, right? He, that, that is how this works. It is totally focused on the self and what fulfills the self here and now. One, let me give you an example of one of these uh, expressions of this bespoke religions that also comes from Burton. She tells the story in her book of a lapsed Jewish woman who was mourning the death of her queer husband. So we could have a whole session just on that. Uh, uh, but he, having rejected his Protestant upbringing, instead opted to find spiritual meaning in the occult and in video games, okay, so in in her mourning her husband to honor his memory, she held a, 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 a memorial service, and this memorial service combined Jewish Kaddish prayers, themes song theme songs from Zelda, his favorite uh, his favorite game, uh, donations to Planned Parenthood, just a huge smorgasbord of all these different religious things that they had glommed together, right? Another example she cites might, uh, would be Paul Kittner's book, get the title of it. All you need is the title, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. 
Okay, so what you're seeing here uh, is, is these groups, these remixed religions holding uh, contradictory beliefs and being completely comfortable with this because it is based on emotive intuition, commodified experience, and self-creation and self-improvement. Okay, now, why is this? How do they do this? Well, this works in part because they define religion and the intentions of religion entirely differently than we do as well. Burton sets out her definition of religion, or, or sets out uh, in her definition of, definition of religion four things that religion provides and therefore helps people uh, in their lives. Okay? And she said, these are the four things that religion does. It provides meaning, it provides purpose, it provides community, and it provides ritual. Okay, so meaning. Religion helps you frame your understanding of the world. It answers questions such as, why does the world exist? Okay, so it gives meaning to, to what's happening around you. Religion provides purpose. It's more than just a big picture. It helps you find your place in this picture, right? It answers the question, yes, the world exists, but why do you exist in the world? Okay, uh, religion, according to Burton, also gives you community. Not only do you have a place as an individual, but religion gives you a community, shared experiences with other individuals. And then ritual. One of the fascinating things is that studies are showing more and more the value and importance of ritual in the daily lives of people. These rituals bind you to a community, and they help you uh, form meaning and purpose in those communities and in your own lives. Now, before we go anywhere else, what's, what's missing in all of these definitions, or in this definition of religion? What's not there? God, <laughs> the one spiritual reality that actually exists. The, all of these definitions are framed entirely around who? The self. The self. Okay, so Soul, Sample, one, uh, soul Cycle, once again, is an example of this. Uh, Burton actually calls this a modern secular religion, Soul Cycle. And it fits these full, uh, four needs. In Soul Cycle, you find a community of other people, right? Uh, the trainers offer you, offer you not simply exercise, but purpose through these motivational mantras. These phrases also build a worldview that is centered around you, giving you meaning in the notion of wellness and self-care. And it's a ritual that you do every day with your other fellow religionists, right? So soul cycle, that's how Burton is coming to understand this. It is an example of this modern secular religion. Once again, Burton is not critical of this. In fact, she sees this as beneficial. She sees this as ways for society to have spiritual beliefs without the baggage of a creedal religion. Just stew on that for a bit. I've been stewing on it ever since I read it, right? Okay, so how do we critique this? How do we understand this? I think there's one, one thing we need to really grasp here is that this is part of the milieu in which we live. It's easy for us to critique all of them out there, but the fact of the matter is all of us sitting in this room are in some fashion uh, influenced by this, okay? So the critique is not simply something we do out there, but it's actually something we do in here. Let's reflect on this. How do we look at this from, or interpret this, as we say the Lutheran witness, interpret this from a Lutheran perspective? The first thing to note is remixed religion is intensely focused inward toward myself, toward my own religious navel. St. Augustine called this in Latin, incurvatus se. Martin Luther would pick up on this a uh, thousand years, 1200 years later, also talking about the same uh, 
sin essentially for Augustine is looking in on oneself, focusing on oneself, looking to oneself for fulfillment and and, uh, and and all one's needs, right? And you can see this in the scriptures, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve do not look to God's commands, but to their own desires. Why does Eve take the fruit? She saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. She's looking inward toward her own desires and her own uh, what, what's good for her and for Adam, right? And this tracks throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Bespoke emotive intuitional religion builds on one's own personal desires and preferences. I get to pick and choose what I believe and what I don't. If I want and to believe in Zelda and include that in my funeral, great. That can fulfill me spiritually, so be it. I can worship myself in soul cycle and to keep the peace in the family, go to church with grandma on Christmas and Easter too. And it's all okay. Once again, we might call this self-idolatry or auto-idolatry. It is the religion of myself. It is a return to the original sin in the Garden of Eden. So that's the first thing to notice about this remix. Totally inwardly focused. Another central problem with this worldview is its emphasis on emotions and feelings and intuitions. And it's all over the place. This is one of the things that I think even many of us need to be careful with and and struggle with, right? I remember... Uh, as a young kid, thinking about Luke, you remember in, in Star Wars, he's going through the, the tunnel uh, and, and he's getting ready to, to shoot the bombs and he pulls the thing, right? Just trust your feelings, right? How often have you seen that or some variation of that on your memes on Facebook, right? Trust your feelings. Do what feels right. This is all over the, 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 the TV, all over Hollywood, right? Do what feels right. Trust your heart. But here's the problem with a heart. It is inherently untrustworthy. Uh, Jesus says, For out of the heart come murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. My heart is, in fact, the source of all my problems. If I can be uh, granted a a brief aside here, (laughs) uh, I'll never forget there was a a woman I catechized, and we're going to talk about her son here in a little bit, when I was in Livingston, Texas, and I knew I had gotten through with this verse. When I get a Valentine's Day card from her, I open it up and it says, from my black twisted heart to yours, happy Valentine's Day. And I was like, yes, you get it. That's fantastic. Okay. My heart, my intuitions, my feelings are the source of the problem, right? I need something outside myself. Okay, the other thing to note about this remixed religion and the nun category is that this is the religion of our children. I think in many ways, one of the struggles that we have to face is our failure to pass on our faith to our children as we should have. We are indeed all affected to this by, to one degree or another, but those most influenced by this remixed religion and by what Burton describes in this horrifying book are millennials and younger. Just consider a few of these stats. Among white millennials, only 8% identify as evangelical, compared to 26% of seniors. The stats are far worse for Generation Z. This generation, born mid to late 90s, uh, into the 2010s, leads the religiously unaffiliated category. 34%, 34% identify as unaffiliated and are twice as likely to identify as atheists when compared to the general population. And lest we turn into grumpy old people talking about how them youngsters just don't have it right, once again, we need to note that we all have been affected by this remixing of religion. Again, Burton, 
Whichever box we tick on the religious question on the census, we've all been influenced by the gospels of self-care and best selfism that we see on billboards and internet advertisements and how we talk about fitness or wellness or psychology. My point here is I'm not convinced that our declining membership in the LCMS is based entirely on our failure to witness out there to reach the unchurched. Rather, I think one of our failings has been keeping those already in here, those who already belong to the church. It is, in fact, a failing to witness to our nearest neighbors. We've been so far concerned with all those neighbors out there that we fail to witness to the nearest neighbors, those in our very own home, our children. We haven't taught and catechized them. We haven't limited the influences of this culture. We haven't combated the influences of this culture on ourselves or on our children. Dear people of God, this is hard law. It's hard for me. And the first step in addressing it is to repent, confess of our sins and failures, and ask the Lord for forgiveness and fall on his grace. He forgives you, and he will continue to work for the good of those called according to his purpose. Only by his forgiveness can we continue to talk about the witness that we then give to the world. So that's the first chunk. This is the, the struggle that we're up against. Let's now talk about this witness that we have. And I'm going to break this into three categories, witness in the home, witness in the church, and witness in the world. Returning to 1 Peter, recall that God has chosen us from the world as royal priests to proclaim his excellencies. As we discussed, this takes place as we faithfully receive the means of grace, pure and unadulterated, use them for our own edification, and as we bring them to those who do not yet belong to the kingdom of God. Let me ask a question. As we talk about our witness in the home, where our witness begins, where does the first witness take place in Scripture? What was the first mission? Who was the first, I, I'm not a huge fan of this, but who was the first missionary, I suppose you could say, in the Scriptures? Was it not Adam himself? Was he not made before Eve and given the command by God to, uh, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created? Adam was himself the first witness to her. He bore the responsibility to catechize and teach her in the faith, which at this point simply consisted of, do not eat of this tree. And from this, God establishes a fundamental pattern within the church. Fathers teach the faith. They hand over the faith to the family. Who brought Isaac to be circumcised? It was Abraham. Now, certainly throughout the scriptures, there were times when fathers failed, right? Moses did not circumcise his son. And Exodus reports that at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death for his failure to circumcise his son. It was only his wife's intervention and her circumcision of their son that saved his life. But this is the exception that proves the rule. Had Moses done as he had commanded, as God had commanded, he would not have been danger from the Lord. Today in the LCMS, the initial witness that our children often receive, those children born into these households, is given in infancy in the waters of holy baptism. The initial act of witness takes place as father and mother bring the child to receive the faith. And this responsibility continues throughout the child's time in the home and even continues, though differently, when they leave. Parents continue to bear responsibility to witness their children even when their children have flown the coop even when their children don't want to listen. That's a hard one to do, too. 
Now, before we get into specific suggestions for how we do this witness in the home, I want to offer a couple of comments and a caveat. First, I'm still discovering this with you. I have failed in many ways as a parent of seven, and I only have one teenager. There are many more failures to come. In some ways, my parents were much better at this. In other ways, they could also have been better. This is the nature of Christian parenting. We lived lives of confession and absolution, repenting before God and even our children when we fail and receiving forgiveness for those sins. Jesus did not come to call perfect parents, but sinners. In a paraphrase of one of President Harrison's favorite ways of saying this, if you're a perfect parent, Jesus didn't come for you. He came for sinful parents. Second, this section could be a book in its own right. I'm only going to hit the highlights and move on. And my suggestions here are not in order of priority, nor exhaustive, nor are they even required. I'm simply offering these as suggestions and reflections. Finally, the caveat. I know from personal experience that there are Christian homes in which each of these suggestions followed below were done, and yet their children still abandon the faith. There's no, go do this, and I guarantee your children are never going to leave the faith. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that these things will harden our children to the influences of the world and equip them with the tools that they need to fight the onslaught of secularism and remixed religion that they will face the moment they leave our homes. So, what does witness in the home look like? My first suggestion is a confession and absolution home, a home characterized by repentance and forgiveness. Parents model this behavior for their children by confessing their sins to one another and to their children and speaking a word of forgiveness to one another. The children need to see this. They need to see mom and dad not simply getting into a fight, but actually forgiving one another, repenting to one another and saying, I forgive you. It's a fundamental thing that children need to see. They need to see the parents become reconciled. Children, likewise, need to learn to confess their sins against their parents and to their siblings. And likewise, the parents need to speak a word of forgiveness to their children. This is hard for parents sometimes because I want to tell them, you screwed up and here's how you stop screwing up. Don't do this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. And I got a whole list of things to fix what they did wrong. Absolution. Forgiveness declares it done. That's it. Full stop. It's very important. Parents, you need to learn to confess your sins to your children. That's hard too. Confess your sins to your children and then receive the word of absolution from them as well. Have them speak it. Say it. I forgive you, Mom. I forgive you, Dad. Now, part of this confession and absolution home is connecting this confession and absolution to that which is spoken by the pastor on Sunday morning. So if the children learn the forgiveness I speak grows out of the forgiveness delivered to me in the morning, on Sunday morning, by the pastor, uh, from, I should say, by Christ through the pastor. They can forgive, even when they really don't want to, the children can, even when they really don't want to, because they also receive that same forgiveness on Sunday morning. A confession and absolution home grows out of that confession and absolution given on Sunday morning. Our homes need to be theological homes. Another insight from Burton is the necessity of discussing the faith in the home. As you read through her study, one of the most significant indicators of whether or not children, children remained in the faith was whether or not parents discussed what they believed at home. 
So how often are we as parents talking about what we believe and why we believe it? The reality is we are deceiving ourselves if we think that a 20-minute sermon and, at best, two one-hour Bible studies during the week can compete with the ongoing indoctrination of our children that they are receiving from the world and the TV and their phones and social media. You've got to be discussing what you believe and why you believe it in the home regularly. One of the fundamental ways of doing this is regular devotions in the home. This provides you with an opportunity to talk about a passage of scripture, ask questions, and show children how to see Jesus in that passage. And here, I don't know if he's here anymore, but you all can uh, keep an eye out for Pastor Hayes' article on, uh, on uh, devotions in the home and how they have you witness uh, to the world. He doesn't know he's writing this yet, but I saw him talk about it in his little video there. And that's an amazing insight. Learning how to talk in the, or talking about this in the home with your children, guess what that's going to do when it comes time to talk about this with your neighbor? Well, you've already done it 15 or 20 or 100 times because you're doing it every day during devotion hour, right? That's an amazing insight. So if you're out there, Pastor Hayes, consider yourself contracted. Actually, we do have an article on or an issue coming up on church planting next year, and, and uh, I hope he writes for it, so... This is also one of the areas that the Lutheran Witness magazine is attempting to help parents. When we're doing this magazine, we're hoping to provide uh, topics for theological instruction that parents can read and then discuss with their children. For example, this month's issue is a discussion of war. And given what's going on, in, going on in Ukraine, this is an opportunity for parents to read this magazine and talk about this with their children. So the home needs to be a confession and absolution home. It needs to be a theological home. It also needs to be a set-apart home. I think I had originally labeled this a weird home. And I think that actually might be a better label too. But at the beginning, we discussed how God set apart the people of Israel. He set apart the church for a purpose. As Christians, you live lives or you make choices that set you apart from the world. And it might make you and your children seem a little bit weird. I think that's actually a good thing. One example might be, for example, TV time. And here I guess I'm giving myself away in my age a little bit. Um, we didn't actually have a TV growing up in our house for most of my youth. It made me a bit weird. I still kind of am. And that's okay. If we're going to rear our children in the faith, we need the courage to say, I do not want my children primarily influenced by Hollywood, by the world, but rather by Christ and faith in him. I also think that to some degree, this also includes the books they read. See, many times we always heard the, you know, I was growing up, we don't have TV because I want my kid to read. I read a lot of really bad stuff growing up, right? It's not simply turning off the TV. It's being aware of what you know, or being aware of what your children's reading and, and guiding them in that as well. I'm not convinced I want my daughter reading most of the books in the young adult section in Barnes & Noble. They might actually be worse than TV in some ways. Okay? I also think this is vital for parents to withhold social media and personal electronic devices as long as possible. Social media has been shown time and time again to be incredibly dangerous for the young mind. It's vital we protect our children from its influences as long as we are able. Encourage physical, interpersonal relationships instead. Meet with the kids at church, right? Have large families, then you have a built-in support group, right? I also should say, I know there are a lot of reasons why cell phone for kids 
and school are convenient, I honestly just don't buy any one of them. My poor wife, she's a blessed saint, uh, anytime we ha when we were first having our first child, you know, there's all these things that come with children, like monitors and this, that, and the other thing. And I always asked, what did they do 100 years ago? Right? She got so tired of that question. What did they do 100 years ago? Right? I'm just not convinced that for the majority of the history of the world, children managed to survive without cell phones, that all the reasons they need them are worth it. Right? I think our children's lives, our children's faith, are much, much, much more important. Okay, so we have absolution home, theological home, uh, weird home, I think I'll go with that. Uh, it's also a receiving the gifts home. There's two aspects here. First, witness in the home revolves around teaching your children that attending worship on Sunday morning takes precedence over everything else. Consider just for a moment with me what's happening on Sunday morning in the divine service. Worship is not something you're doing for God. He doesn't frankly need it, right? It's not something, in fact, that's primarily about what you're doing. I mean, just even think about this phrase. My vicarage supervisor, he made me excise this from my vocabulary. We talk about, I have, I have to go to church, right? As though it's something I'm doing, as though I'm under some sort of obligation. Uh, that's not why we go to church. We go to church to receive God's gifts. In the divine service, God comes and fills you with his great and precious gifts. If you read, read Ephesians, right, if you need some, some reason why to do this, and look at how many times Paul discusses what God is doing for us as unsearchable, unknowable riches and treasures beyond your comprehension. That's what's happening in the divine service on Sunday morning. Nothing, literally nothing in this world can compare with what he gives you on Sunday morning. Now, what are we telling our children when we say, well, it's okay to miss this week. We're on vacation. Or to say, well, we have this sporting event. We'll just miss it this once. It's okay. We're telling them that we really don't believe what's happening on Sunday morning is all that important, that it's not as important as what it truly is, and they believe it. So that's the first part. Second, this also means telling your children that as they grow up, God's gifts on Sunday morning are even more important than their education. And here's a word of encouragement uh, when looking at college searches. The first task in any college, college search should be finding a solid LCMS campus ministry or congregation nearby. If you can't find one near the school, that school is off the list. It does not matter how good the school is. It does not matter what opportunities that school ought to provide or might provide. The most important thing for your child is ensuring your child's faith remains fed and strengthened during one of the most difficult times of temptation they will face in their entire lives, full stop. Nothing else is more important. This also means that if you're in a congregation near a college, be ready to reach out. Be, a, be there to, to help and support those college students. Know who, who of your Lutheran brethren are going there so that you can support those children. So that, uh, that was the second one. Receive, or the, I don't know, I'm on the fourth or fifth. I can't keep track. Receiving gifts. Okay. Finally, uh, our witness in the home also means a witness in, school, in, the, in our children's schooling. Our Christian witness means providing opportunities for Lutheran schooling, for the education of our children. I think this has become more and more evident over the last few years in particular. 
one of the founding goals, it's really fascinating to look at the history of the LCMS and the charter congregations of the Synod. And every one of the founding 14 charter congregations of Synod had a school associated with it. Of the 12 remaining in the LCMS, eight still have schools. Why is this? Well, both Winnikin and Walther thought that education of the children was one of the primary tasks in keeping children in the faith and maintaining them in this. The pastor was the pastor of the congregation. Guess what he also did? He taught the school. He was the one-room school teacher, right? Uh, it was so vital that they baked it into the very life of this church body, and the LCMS remains one of the, most, uh, one of the largest uh, parochial school programs in the United States. We need to be expanding this. Uh, I also want to share with you a quote from Johannes Bugenhagen. This is from the August issue. I guess it was August 20. 22, 21 issue. My whole life is broken down by months of the year, you know, and issues. Uh, so this is from the August 2021 issue, where Johannes Bugenhagen, he was a reformer, uh, actually Luther's pastor in Wittenberg after 1523. He was a reformer that was interested in schools, and he wrote this about education in particular, right? If you know Jesus well, it is sufficient if you do not know other things. If you do not know Jesus, it is nothing if you learn other things. Once again, if you know Jesus well, it is sufficient if you do not know other things. If you do not know Jesus, it is nothing if you learn other things. The reason we educate our children in Lutheran schools, the reason why our churches need to have Lutheran schools, is to ensure that our children, above all, know Jesus and are firmly rooted and grounded in him. Now these suggestions are of course just a start, but these are some of the things that mark the witness in the home. It's about making hard decisions that will look weird to the world, but these things will help and keep and preserve our children in the faith. Now I realize that for many of you out there, these choices are past. Doubtless you made some good choices, doubtless you also made some bad ones. If anything, having seven children has taught me even how great a sinner I am, especially when you start to see your own sins reflected in your children. You just shake your head and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So repent with me of what needs repentance and fall on the grace of God and continue to pray that God would keep them in their baptismal faith. God promises to hear your words. Continue to witness to your children when you have opportunity. Be regular in your study of God's word. Be so dedicated that they begin to ask, why do you have this hope? This is a few notes here on parenting older children. Uh, my father is, I'm going to give you his age, I think he's 65, 66, right? He's learning how to keep parenting me. I'm a stubborn one. Uh, so let me offer some suggestions here. I've often found that parents are hesitant to speak with their older, older children about their faith because they're concerned that it will create an irreparable division, irreparable harm. And I recognize the reality of this concern and the fact that this does happen. At the same time, I would encourage you, what's more important, a temporal, potential temporal division or the eternal well-being of your child? Now, the way to go about this will be different for every, every family, every parent, every child. You obviously cannot lay your 30-year-old child over your knee and discipline him, as my father would like to do to me, I'm sure. But you can ask questions, you can encourage, you can speak of Jesus to him or her and encourage them in this faith, continue to encourage them. 
And finally, I want to say, uh, we're coming close to the end of time. I actually have, I don't know, five, six more pages. <laughs> but I want to say, support the families in your congregation. Encourage them as they train up children in the faith. Help them make weird decisions, seriously. Help them stick out a little bit. Uh, help them protect their children from the vicissitudes of this world as long as they absolutely can. They, they need to know they're not alone when they walk in with their horde of seven kids, right? They need to know the whole church stands behind them and encourages them. So please, please do that. I'm going to skip again, skip here real quick to the end, to the wrap-up, and then a shameless plug. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have received mercy. Doubtless, any of you who are parents have made mistakes in the past in dealing with your children. You've made poor decisions and at times done the wrong things. But what has been done right is that God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world to be his own child. He chose you in Christ Jesus before you were even born. And he added you to the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he circumcised you in heart and mind through the waters of holy baptism, making you his own child. He has forgiven you your, you, your sins, whatever they might be, and brought you into his kingdom. Once indeed you were all disparate individuals, self-focused and incurvatus say, but now you are his people. You are his chosen race, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. And as such, let us now go proclaim his excellencies that the world might see his marvelous light in our homes, in our churches, and even in the world. Let me offer then a quick shameless plug if you haven't already subscribed to the Lutheran Witness, you can do this at cph.org witness. And we also have a website, which is a different address, witness.lcms.org. We put a lot of stuff there. Uh, if you, Kansas district actually has an insert. So if you go through the district, you get a deal. It's $20 online, but through the district, you get a deal. I don't know what it is. Do you know what it is, President Panzer? 16 and a quarter for, uh, you can't beat this price anywhere, I guarantee it. I mean, look at National Geographic, it's a lot more than this, right? So cancel that one, stick with the Lutheran Witness. Uh, go through the district office because you'll get a deal. I also want to say I'm always looking for topics and I want to hear from you. We had uh, the, the uh, June-July issue of 2020 was an issue on the church. And we did that entire issue because somebody called me up and he said, Pastor Askins, we're having a problem in our congregation. We're not getting along with our pastor, and we need to know what are we supposed to be doing as the church? How are we supposed to be relating to our pastor? And so we did an entire issue on it because somebody called me and asked for it. Okay? So please call me, contact me, roy.askins at lcms.org, or look, on the, look in the magazine. My phone number's in there. If there's something we need to cover, uh, let me know, and I'll do my best to address that in some way. So once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. And uh, I think you should be commended for the work that you're doing here and uh, continue to point people to Christ and him crucified. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to part two of this presentation to the Kansas District. I hope you enjoyed this and learned something about what it means to uh, live in the faith and to witness to one's family and and uh, the great challenge we have facing us as we witness to those who identify religiously as not belonging to any particular religious affiliation. It's great to be serving you here as the editor of The Lutheran Witness to be helping you learn to look at the world from a Lutheran perspective. <laughs>